Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well That's done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I said all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I'm at the Words on the Waves Writers' Festival, and I'm very excited to speak to Michael Muhammad Ahmed because it's the first time that we've met face to face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm so excited. So Michael is the founding director of the Sweatshop Literacy Movement and editor of the critically acclaimed anthology After Australia, which we spoke about on the podcast previously. Your debut novel, The Tribe, won the 2015 Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist of the Year Award. The second novel, The Lebs, which I just loved, won the 2019 New South Wales Premier's Multicultural Literary Award and was shortlisted for the 2019 Miles Franklin Literacy Award. And you received your doctorate in 2017. And it's so impressive and it gets better every time I speak to you. <laughs> Well, every time we speak, I've written another book or I've edited something. <laughs> and today we're going to speak about the other half of you, which is a little bit different to what you've written before. Can you give us an elevator pitch as to what this one's about? Well, firstly, I'll say thank you for having me on your podcast again. And uh, Salaamu Alaikum, which means peace be upon you. And I extend that salam to all of our wonderful listeners. I, I, I wish you all peace listening to this interview and afterwards from the bottom of my heart. Um, so the other half of you is um, my third novel. It uh, continues um, on in some ways from my first two novels, The Tribe and The Lebs. Um, I think that The Tribe really focused on Arab-Australian Muslim male identity from a child's perspective. Uh, the Lebs looked at the experience of my identity as an Arab-Australian Muslim man from a teenager's perspective, and I think it was particularly important because it was that pivotal moment during the September 11 attacks. So it's already difficult being a teenager, and then to add to that the, the stress of becoming, you know, the number one um, 
targeted and uh, you know ostracized minority in the country and in some ways the world uh, I think was very important and now the other half of you looks at the experience of being an Arab Australian Muslim man as an adult as a man and I, I, I feel like it becomes a little bit more tender now not just because Banny the autobiographical version of myself that I've been developing for 10 years is older and has a kind of stronger sense of reality and a stronger sense of who he is in the world but also because he's telling this story directly to his son and and, and the, the Bani's son in the book is named Khalil it's a letter to my son whose name is Khalil and um, and I feel like it creates a, a level of tenderness uh, as we navigate what I think are still some really intense and confronting moments in the book but but I just think it's kind of got this uh, slightly more um, a sweetness to it because you can feel um, you can feel this little boy who's 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 ex who's being who's being um, introduced to um, to ban to his father's world. But it's so real because you know, as a teenager, you know how we're, we're teenagers are angry usually and confused and trying to you know figure out who they are. But kids change you, and once you have a child of your own, I mean, they they change you, don't they? And they do make you tender. So I really like the growth. Of that character, how did you feel tapping into Banny as an adult? Yeah, um, so that point you're making about change you. I mean, I've done so many interviews now because you 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 remember when when I did the Lebs, when I wrote it and I started doing all these interviews, the number one word that came up was confronting. This is very confronting, to a point where so many people were genuinely upset and just would attack me in my interviews. You know. And would would kind of talk about the the hideousness of the boys that I created, and now coming back and doing these interviews again with the same people who I met during the lebs, and they're just like, what happened? How is the tone so different? And I have only one answer to that, which is fatherhood. You know, I mean, literally seeing my son come out of his mother with my face <laughs> i mean we, the three of us became connected for eternity in that in that way in that you know i call it it's some kind of trinity and i remember the night my son was born jane who is his mum, was in the bed in the hospital bed trying to get some sleep you know get a maybe half an hour before he starts crying for food but i remember these moments in the middle of the night where i'd be holding him and he um he was uh he was asleep and i would be in the dark and I remember literally writing um, the first scenes of the other half of you wow. the night my son was born on my phone he's in my arms Jane is asleep and I'm writing the first scenes on my phone and I, I just could feel this kind of new voice and this new energy that I really wanted to get off my chest the minute it happened you know and, and so that's the answer is that but how authentic is that writing that when you're holding your child and you're telling this story to child? i love that story so much <laughs> yeah i mean I, I look you know uh everybody talks about their uh about childbirth and their experiences differently of course uh, men and women would articulate articulate it differently and it, it comes from a very different point of view so I, i'm not in any denial about the view that i bring into the to this story you know I, I i come from the experience of being an arab australian muslim father um but but you know uh, khalil's real mum, my the mother of my son and the, the the fictional character that she's based that is based on her in the book is anglo-australian and comes from a middle-class secular family and so i really um I, I really felt like it was important to tell a story this time that was about coming together 
you know, and that was about unity and solidarity, especially coming off uh, COVID and Black Lives Matter and earlier before that, the, the, the hideous um, Christchurch massacre in which an Australian-born white supremacist massacred 51 Muslims peacefully conducting their Friday prayers. It just feels like it's been such a divided time between people of colour and white people in Australia and around the world. And I, I really wanted to tell a love story that brings us together and that, and that you know, reminds us that there's still hope that we can, as a species, survive this period. But what I really do love about your writing, and particularly this book, is that although it's tender and it's got that different sort of perspective, you don't shy away from the hard things as well. So I really like that. But was that hard for you to write? Because they're based a little bit on your own experiences. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to in any way um, pretend that this is a very cheesy love story. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think there's a very strong loving element. And I think it's really important that Arab men and men of colour and Indigenous men are given the platform to talk about love. Um, because I feel like so often we're imagined in this very one-dimensional way, which is incredibly toxic and uh, hyper-masculine, patriarchal, and, um, you know, almost soulless. You, you know, you see these kind of racist cartoon portrayals of Arab and Muslim men throwing their children into war zones in the Middle East. A uh, very famous cartoon by Bill Leake in which a Palestinian father is throwing, throwing his son into a war zone and saying, go and win daddy's PR war for him. And the subtext to this is that we don't love our children, you know, that we use our children as human shields. And so I wanted to tell this kind of poetic love story to counterbalance all the negative portraits of us as, as brown men, as Arab men, as Muslim men, as um, First Nations men. Um, but at the same time, you know, the reality of being uh, a person like me growing up in a post 9-11 era, uh, it was not a pleasant one. The, you know, constant uh, confrontations with white Australia, racist confrontations with white Australia on a personal level as well as on a political and, and uh, media level. Uh, constant uh, problems within my own community, you know. I don't uh, in any way want to um, deny that there are patriarchal problems that... Um, fathers and husbands enact on their partners and on their children that I'm trying to address in this book. Um, there are, as you know, really epic street brawls that take place, you know, lab brawls um, that I, you would have noticed in the book that I equate in the kind of language I use to the Iliad. There's a lot of uh, references to Homer in that, in that particular sequence of events. And so, look, the, the idea for me as a creative writer is not to tell a positive story or a negative story, but to tell a complex story. Yeah. Because the human condition is complex. And so you get the kind of the, the poetry and you get the warts simultaneously in this book, I think. But that's what makes it so beautiful. I love that. They're my kind of favourite kind of stories. You know, I think if you just have the light or the dark, it gets very dull. But when you put them both together, that's what creates a beautiful story. Just circling back to what you said about the things you've seen in the media and those cartoons that, you know, horribly depict stereotypes. You're changing the narrative, and I guess you want to do that for your son as well. Yeah, I mean, it's firstly important to recognise that this is not an accident. It's a deliberate strategy of white supremacy to construct um, Arab and Muslim men in a negative way. Um, I'll, I'll give a, a scholarly reference uh, to back this up, but uh, Edward Said is an important Palestinian scholar who probably most famously wrote uh, Orientalism. I, I think it should be required reading for anybody that's interested in understanding uh, Arab and Muslim identity. But, you know, Edward Said was arguing uh, before he died that uh, you can go and study uh, a course in high school, all you know, entire an entire. You can go through all of high school. You can go through all of university and not study even one Arab text from the Arab world. And 
Um, he argues that that's very strange, that a literature that's thousands of years old, uh, that represents about 350 million people, has just deliberately been left out of the curriculums. And he says this is not a coincidence, because if you look at that literature, it's actually very humanizing. The Arab and Muslim literary tradition is very poetic, it's very chivalrous, it's very romantic. Um, you know, I just think of uh, texts like Leila and Majnun, which are, of course is our Romeo and Juliet and is heavily referenced in, in the other half of you. And the point, um, the point of all this is that, um, that you know, if you portray us in a, in a humanist, humanized way, if, if our humanity is actually given to Western citizens, it might make it a little bit more difficult to invade those countries. You know, if you actually care about the people who are being invaded, and you actually recognize that those people are human beings who have emotions, who have feelings. Um, it just makes it diffi more difficult when the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of Australia says, let's go and invade Iraq. And so in, in the attempt to dehum in an attempt to, as a strategy that is built on invading these countries and in most cases stealing their resources, you need to try and create a, a dehumanized narrative so that people are not too concerned about what happens to those people. Um, and for that reason, um, uh, you know, it, is, it has been the pain of my life and my career to have to witness this constant uh, negative stereotyping about us with cartoons like the ones Bill Leake created. Um, and of course, people might remember that he did similar portrayals of indigenous men, you know, as people who don't love their children and don't recognize their children. Um, of course, the subtext to all this is that uh, white men love their children more than brown men and black men do. So, so what is the, the, the purpose of my writing and this idea of trying to tell this story? It is, it is explicitly about reclaiming our humanity and finding our dignity and our integrity. And it's so important, not so much for me, I've gone through it, but it's more about like, you know, preparing my son for that world and, and also hoping for a better world for him. Absolutely, and that's what I love about your work. And I think when we spoke about the labs, I called it confronting, but not in a negative way. I was saying it was confronting in a way that needs to be that way because we need to challenge what people think. Um, you know, not what everyone thinks, but we need to challenge that, you know, what we see in the media. And I think you do that so, so, so well. So I love that you've gone on this journey with this character, which is probably real, you know, that kind of angry teenager trying to figure it out and their love because love and babies, they just do change everything. Mm. So I want to speak to your point on the fact that it's confronting. And why, um, I, I, I was never offended by it. Mm. I, I just have to be very clear that, you know, I, I knew it was confronting. I knew that what I had written was confronting and so I, I wasn't going into these interviews and being surprised that people identified it that way. But, the, but, but what I would say back and what I was always responding with is, I know it's confronting to be in bed reading about these lab boys from Punchbowl in the post 9-11 era, but try being a lab. Like my reality was very confronting and the question then becomes not, you know, whether I'm, um, whether I whether, whether the book is allowed to be confronting, but whether I'm allowed to write, because this is my experiences, and whether Australia has a big enough heart to invite somebody like me into the writing space to share this story, which can be confronting. And I'm glad that we have, you know, the awards that it's won. I know today, um, your session 
was you know greatly received by the audience so I know that we have welcomed you and I really really do hope that you know not just you but we all keep changing that narrative and changing that stereotype because it's not helpful to anybody um, the point I was making on it being a strategy you know of the West to, to perpetuate that narrative because it justifies particular policies in the Middle East I mean it's important to remember that it's not just symbolic it's not just like the pain the personal pain it causes to see a cartoon of an Arab father using their child as a human shield um, it's the reality that like you know right now hundreds of Palestinians and children are being slaughtered you know in a, in a very very unfair um, uh, in a very unfair conflict uh, where one group has you know like billions and billions of dollars more in resources and weapons against this persecuted minority and so it has real-world um, outcomes Absolutely, and it's just all those things we talk about. It's just devastating. I mean, do you just think it's 2021? Like, why, why are we still here? You know, why are we still having this conversation? So, what can we, what can we do better? I ask you this all the time. Yeah, I appreciate that question because I always do have a good answer as a writer. You know, um, the, the politics of sweatshop, the literacy movement I run in Western Sydney, are built on. Um, many of the ideas that were introduced through the African-American civil rights struggle, an important uh, African-American social activist, scholar and feminist named Bill Hawkes, um, argues that all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy determine how you see what you see. And the other quote that I like to draw from from Bill Hawkes is the concept of coming to voice, which is the act of moving from silence to speech as a revolutionary gesture in writing. And so in, in the case of change and how we transform the image and how we correct uh, the course we're on, it's very simple for me as a writer. It's um, encouraging people to read. You know, much of the politics that uh, Switch Off is built on draw from the African-American civil rights struggle. And one of the most influential figures uh, for me as a, um, as, a, as a writer has been uh, the African-American cultural theorist, feminist and social activist, Bell Hawks who argues that all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy will determine how we see what we see. And another quote from Bell Hawks is the concept of coming to voice, the act of moving from silence to speech as a revolutionary gesture. And so, you know, for me as a writer and as an editor and as somebody who teaches creative writing to thousands of young people of colour from Western Sydney every year, I. I always have hope um, when I'm thinking, when I'm asked a question about change, because I work in the industry where I think change uh, is, in, is easy to imagine, it's easy to see, because the goal for us is teaching people to read, write and think critically, and I think if, if all of our societies in Australia and our communities have access to these three things, change will be a natural byproduct of that. Mm, oh, absolutely, and I love what you're doing with Sweatshop. What are some of the projects coming up for you guys? Um, another Australia is coming up. So After Australia was uh, an anthology that I edited um, in uh, 2020. It was produced in partnership with Diversity Arts Australia and Affirm Press as our publisher. And in uh, 2022, there will be another Australia. This time I'll take a backseat, I'll be a sub-editor. And the amazing Winnie Dunn, who's a common oh. Australian writer from Mount Druitt and the general manager of Sweatshop will be the editor. 
and um, and I um, we Sweatshop is also producing uh, an anthology called Blacklight, which will be edited by the Wawajiri writer Hannah Donnelly, and Blacklight will be Sweatshop's first ever Indigenous exclusive anthology, wow. showcasing ten years of Indigenous storytelling and First Nations storytelling from Western Sydney. Oh, I can't wait for that, and I, it's just so wonderful what you're doing, and you're really shining a light on those voices, which should have been done, you know many many years ago but it's so good that you've just seen that that's what we need to do and you just go and do it thank you for that point um the idea of going and doing it you know i'm I'm really against the 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 current rise in cancel culture i don't i'm not on social media i don't participate in this kind of uh attacking white people you know i mean the the whole like going on Twitter and just constantly abusing white people about how they're all evil to me is counterproductive yeah and I'm not really interested in the 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 fantasy of um, of change you know that I don't think these things lead to change mm-hmm. what I'm interested in is literacy teaching young people of color to read write and think critically and what I'm interested in is creating a platform through mainly through publication for the minorities that I work with and the, the minority that I'm from um, to actually be able to evoke psychological change in the public consciousness through storytelling, which yeah. is the way change has always happened historically. Yeah. And so that's how we do our work. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't get caught up in virtual signaling. We're really concerned about literacy and creating writing and storytelling as the primary tool transformation Mm, no that's absolutely true and you know you're speaking to the converted here I always say literature has the power to change the world and has throughout history and has and will again now just going back to your book I was really interested in how you balanced modern love with the faith and the culture of you and your family so how did you balance all of that together to make it this beautiful story yeah so I think it's very tricky to be a minority in Australia, not just a cultural minority, but a religious minority, Mm -hmm. because there is a need to maintain and hang on to some of the traditions, you know, and and, um, I very proudly identify as Arab and Muslim, and and I'm a practicing Muslim, I'm raising my son in an interfaith Muslim home, Um, his mum's Anglo-Australian, came from an atheist family, and you know, we we teach him Muslim values, but we also teach him the secular values that are his mum came from and then we just kind of say he can make up his own yeah. mind um, but you know we, we say Muslim prayers um, before dinner we uh, my father actually uh, who is an important character in the book uh, is um, is teaching my son to read and write Arabic at the oh, moment wow. um, you know my, my son thinks he's only five but he thinks he's fasting <laughs> Ramadan with us oh, you know? I love <laughs> he fasts that. until he gets hungry. <laughs> um, that's gorgeous and, and so you know the way I like to articulate it is that there's a way to maintain tradition without being a slave to it. Mm-hmm. And it's when you become a slave to tradition that it becomes problematic and toxic. The idea that you know old traditional values are unbreakable or are not malleable, that they can't evolve or change or transform, is when things, I think, become predatory, when, when people around you become oppressed. And, and you know in my book, which is the genre is autobiographical fiction, so they're fictional characters, but they are based on my experiences. The, the moment when Banny starts to question certain aspects of his culture and his religion and wants to do it differently, and the community, the tribe, which he calls it the tribe, are, are literally forcing him not to and are actively oppressing him and subjugating him, that's when 
the language of becoming a slave to tradition mm -hmm. um, makes sense. And what I wanted to do was show a story of a complex Arab Australian Muslim man who in some ways reinforces and participates in the, the culture and the history of his people and in other ways subverts it and says I, I'm a you know I'm, I can be totally brand new and I can reinvent what a lot of these things mean mm. and, and I mainly do this through the lens of love you know the, who he chooses to love in the end mm. and look I need to ask you a question tell me if it's too personal but you're coming you know you said you're practicing Muslim and you know very proud of your culture and faith and then you fall in love with an atheist how did this happen yeah, um, so firstly I want to say that there's no question you can't ask me. Oh, thank you. I am a writer and I'm an open book. And I think that, um, you know, for me the idea of being a writer and a storyteller is that if you are going to take things personally and you're going to police people being allowed to ask you personal stories, you shouldn't be a writer. That, you know, that, I'll keep that, that in mind. Yeah, that, you know, like, it's really yeah. important to me because when I'm reading, when I'm as an editor, when I'm reading a story and I can't... Um, and and I, I, I can always tell if the writer isn't being real with me, even yeah. if they're writing fiction or even if they're writing science fiction or fantasy. You know, if a writer's holding back, you as an editor and incidentally you as a reader will, will know that. And so writers have to be willing to give 100% every, every time. Or I would give my advice, my advice to emerging writers is, or don't bother writing. Be an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> Stick to numbers. <laughs> You know, so that's the first thing I would want to say is thank you for asking the personal question. I'm very happy for you to ask any questions you want, and I'm always going to be open about them. Um, in, let's let's keep it on this in the in the fictional realm. Yep. So let's keep it in the realm of the other half of you instead of my my <laughs> real life story, because they sometimes they cross over, but, yep, but many times they don't. You know, uh, uh, Danny has three major relationships in this book. Um, the one, one of them is the one you pointed out to this atheist middle-class white girl and he's coming from a very conservative Arab Australian Muslim family so there's on paper they look very different mm -hmm. but but the other relationship there's two other relationships one is with an Arab Christian girl and one is with a member of his tribe a Lebanese Muslim Alawite from the western suburbs of Sydney and even though they look the most the same on paper they, as you know from the story, are the least compatible. They're very poorly matched. And I say the word matched explicitly because you, you know through the book that you've read that there's literal matchmaking going yeah. on and, and there's this whole kind of uh, uh, ritual around how young people in the tribe get together. Um, and so I really did want to set up that dichotomy for people to engage in is that, yeah, look, just because things might look practical or they might tick boxes on the surface doesn't mean that they add up that way I think human beings are more complex than mm. that and I keep going back to this idea of human being human being which is sounding very generic and broad but this is the reason why I keep going back to it as I've told you before in our previous interviews the name of my autobiographical self is Bani Adam that's the narrator of these books but Bani Adam isn't a name in Arabic it's a term mm -hmm. Bani Adam means child of Adam or more figuratively it's how Arabs refer to humankind and I'm constantly trying to explicitly emphasize to my audience that these books are about reclaiming the humanity in my characters mm -hmm. showing them as three-dimensional because so often you only get a one-dimensional portrait yeah. of Arab and Muslim communities in Australia and around the world Oh, love that answer. And I do love that because it makes me think about soulmates and, you know, that love really does kind of trump everything. And I well, love I that. I feel so inclined now to talk about the first line because there's so much about the idea yeah, of the soul. Yeah, please do. The first line of the other half of you is, rust is my blood, stardust is my soul. 
and you are the blood of my soul and the you there is Bani referring to his son and the idea that um, that you know this kind of what I describe as like a trinity kind of comes into play when two human adults come together and create a life and that um, that in a way I experienced the first sense that I even had a soul the day my son was born mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I, I remember when he was born and when I saw him for the first time, any time I would look at him, tears would just fall out of my eyes. But this is why, why it's so interesting is, I don't remember being happy or sad. The tears were just falling. Mm. And if I look away, the tears would stop. And the minute I look back at him, the tears would come back again. <laughs> and it was like this huge cosmic energy, you know, drawing me and Jane and Kalu into this one being. And um, I remember thinking it was like my soul was falling out of my eyes. Mm. And I want to I say something that you might find so interesting because, we, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, the, the white girl in, my, in the other half of you and you've, we've talked about how she's an atheist. She comes from an atheist family. Um, you know, Christopher Hitchens was probably one of the most famous atheists who ever lived, you know, a, a public intellectual who was propagating atheism as a way of living. What's interesting is in a lot of the interviews he used to conduct, he used to say that if there's probably one moment in a human being's life when they might be swayed towards religion, it's when their children are born. Oh. And I'm not, I'm not trying to sell Christopher Hitchens as like someone who was secretly a theist. I think he went to his grave an atheist. I think mm -hmm. he was really adamant about that. And I respect that, even though I didn't have a lot of respect for him and a lot of the, um, the uh, anti-Muslim and anti-Arab propaganda that he pro promoted in, in the la last stages of his life. But I did respect his atheism. But I also respected his position that there's something so cosmic mm. about childbirth that it almost can 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 sway even the most radical atheists yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And I, I always, when I used to hear Christopher Hitchens say those things, I used to wonder what it was like for him in the birthing room. And I wondered if he used to speak about that because there was something very cosmic and divine that he was feeling mm. in those moments when his own children were born. Oh, absolutely. And as a mother of two myself, I feel that. Danny's mum and my mum, it's quite a funny character, but I, I, I often think back to my mum you know, when, when I would be arguing with her, she'd be like, go and have kids, go and have kids. And when she says go and have kids, she means go and have 10 kids because she's Arab. And, um, and I broke her heart by only having one. But, you know, my mum would always say having children is the most important thing in the world. And, you know, it's very important for me as an educated Arab Muslim man to push up against that. Yes. You know, to, to actually argue, you know, as a, as a person who identifies very strongly with the amazing intersectional feminists in my life. I think it's very important for me to always push up against that narrative that having children is the most important yeah. thing, particularly um, because of its history of subjugating women. Yeah. At the same time, I don't think that means that we shouldn't be allowed to talk about the beauty and the strength yeah. of having children. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I think we can do both. Absolutely, Adam, but we can only speak from our experiences. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my case, and in, in, in uh, the mother of my son's case, I mean, I guess, believe it or not, even just choosing to have one child was shocking to my tribe. Mm -hmm. And it's taken many years. I mean, my Kalu is six now. It's taken many years for the tribe to accept that that's probably all I'm going to do and that that should be okay, mm -hmm. you know? But the amount of times people would say to me, you have to have another one, you have to. <laughs> and man, it used to bug me, man, it used to irk me. And you know what I would say back? I'd say, but I'm a writer. And I, you know, I can't express it enough. It's like being a writer is almost like being a father, like the way you create a book and put it out into the world. 
and then watch it make its kind of trouble and, and you can't control that <laughs> and the love in, in you know I mean especially if you kind of write the way I write which is yeah. I really feel like I try to put my soul I was about to say the soul the on the page yeah. yeah and you can see that though and that's why I love your work so much you can see that you've put your soul on the page and you know as you said I can ask you any question because you know you do that you just put everything there and maybe that's why you know when people read it it is so rich and can be confronting to those people because you know you're so honest but I think that's the beauty of your work thank you I appreciate that now I kind of think I know why you write but I ask the authors this all the time why do you keep writing these beautiful stories why do you need to get them out Mm. um well yeah that's a really good question um I mean we've been having such a spiritual conversation that I might elaborate a little bit on it uh I grew up in a family of illiterates you know my family came from uh war-torn Lebanon in the 1970s um, the, all the all the women, uh, and when I say women, I mean, you know, between my mum's side and my dad's side, I have ten aunties, and and uh, and I have uh, ten uncles. It's a huge family, but all the women dropped out of school and, and became mothers very early on in, in their teens, and all the men dropped out of school and went into the workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, when I was born, I was born into a family and a community where where people were not even high school educated, let alone university educated. I was the very first not just in my immediate family, but in my extended family, to go to university and get a degree, Mm -hmm. and then first in my family to get a doctorate. And so, um, you know, the absence of literature is uh, ironic in my experience, because so many people assume that I was raised in in a literary home, a home where there was lots of books, that's why I became a writer. But it was the absence that made me a writer. I remember as a child, looking for literature, mm-hmm. searching for it, going everywhere to find it, you know, in the house and kind of settling for magazines, you know, my mum's Women's Weeklies, for example. And so I remember wanting to read, more than wanting to write as a, at a young age, maybe as a way of trying to compensate for the absence of literature. Mm-hmm. But there's one interesting thing that, that comes up all the time. If that's the case, then where does that desire come from? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in Islam, a lot of people don't know this because you only get the Fox News narrative about Islam. But, but in Islam, the, the miracle of the Prophet Muhammad is literacy. You know, and, and just I want to put that into perspective. Like the stories you hear about Moses is he split the Red Sea. The stories you hear about Jesus is he rose from the dead. So, you know, it's like healing and magic. In the, in the, in the Muslim tradition, Muhammad's miracle is that he was illiterate to the age of 40. He goes up to the cave of Hera to meditate. And then the archangel is, you know, comes down to him and says read and Muhammad says I'm not of those who read and and the archangel says read in the name of your Lord and then Muhammad comes down from the mountain blazing with poetry which is today the Quran and that is the miracle of Islam and so you know for me as a Muslim like I really like to participate in the literary tradition Mm -hmm. of the of the of, of Muslim history and for me, the, the tradition is the miracle of literacy. It's the idea that literacy can actively transform your life, transform your society, and transform the people in that society. And where does it come from? Well, as a Muslim, it comes from God. It, you know, it's this divine force that, that we are born with, that, mm. that, that the, the angels can bring to us. Mm. I love that story for so many reasons, but particularly the absence of something. And you knew what you didn't know like you knew that you needed it even though it wasn't there and I love that and it has to come from somewhere you know it really has to come from somewhere 
as usual, our conversations always energise me. I always walk away and I always end up thinking about them for days afterwards because I love where these conversations go. And you know that I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm so grateful to have actually met you face to face today. So thank you so much for your time as always. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I really feel compelled to share with our audience that our conversation started in a kitchen. <laughs> yes, please do. And now we are sitting outside in the sun with a beautiful view of the ocean Absolutely. and the sound of the waves. And it's been, this has by far been the most interesting, at least geographically speaking, <laughs> interview I have ever done. Fabulous. We'll take a picture, not of the one in the kitchen, but the one we're in right now. Thank you. And again, I want to say salamu alaikum, peace be upon you, to you, Danny, and also to our wonderful. Our readers and listeners who have joined us. 